Hello, my name's Charlie Winston and this is my podcast called As We Are, which is inspired by my most recent album, As I Am. It's discussions with people who interest me and inspire me. Some of those people you may know, but others you may never have heard of. But that's not the point, you see, because I'm simply interested in people. So, without further ado, I shall let you discover this episode. Take me as I am. Ian Roderick Gray is a director of film, music videos and commercials. We worked together on my album Square One for the songs Lost in the Memory and The Weekend, which both films won various number of awards at various different film festivals. He's a good friend of mine and um, every time we talk we're never short of stories to share and uh, it's always a very compelling conversation. But I chose to invite him onto this podcast especially for his story that he has growing up and what drew him towards film and why he wanted to make it so much. And now without further ado here is our conversation. Enjoy! Ian Roderick Gray, it's nice to have you with me on my podcast. Thanks oh, very much. L- lovely I, I, to be here. I'm doing this kind of like really formal intro, but in fact, we've known each other a little while and we've uh, worked together a few times. We have been, yeah. And there's certain we've, we, there's there's an award that you've won through um, some of your work with me. But how did we, how did it start? How did we meet? Uh, so I was working with uh, the great Adian Coker making music videos yeah. for Adian and That's Adian's right. manager Adham who was also your manager became my manager <laughs> That's it. and shared management we have shared management and I think you'd seen my work and obviously knew you was a big big fan of your beautiful voice and beautiful music and um you know, as creative people do, we kind of came together and eventually, if there's chemistry, I think, you know, ultimately it leads to collaboration. Yeah, and there was. There yeah, was chemistry as so. well. And uh, we made some cool things together, particularly on my last album, um, Square One, where we did the epic um, music video, The Weekend. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's which right. Was quite, yeah, yeah. Which was quite a mission uh, for you particularly, I remember. And then the less epic in a way, but all at the same time still quite epic uh, video, Lost in the Memory, which was the one that actually won a bunch of uh, accolades. Yeah, well, they both actually they won don't, they both awards. Did. Yeah, That's yeah, true. they yeah, both yeah, did. Yeah. But I prefer Lost in the Memory. Um, and funny enough, even though it's it, it appears smaller in scope, it's a lot more ambitious in terms of what we were both trying to do. Yeah. And, you know, Should for me, filmmaking is about... Yeah, I think so. I mean, well, why do you think that that is? Well, I think it was more ambitious because it was, it was li- like we talked a lot about doing one shots, and you were yeah. really into doing. I mean, in fact, both films, The Weekend and Lost in the Memory, look like one shot, except one has trickery. Well, yeah. they both have trickery, but one has one is more theatrical in the set, which is Lost in the Memory. It's more theatrical in the sense that it's raw theatre where you're. You're really mm. not tricking too much, but the other one is more theatrical in terms of the 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 obvious things we see, which yeah. is where it's done in a, a film set and stuff. But um, and, and also one is an actual one take film, and you don't get a lot of those these days. Um, which is lost, lost in the memory. memory is yeah yeah so that really was one take, 
which meant that any kind of mistake in the process of filming, whether it was through audio or through picture, meant we had to immediately abort and start again from scratch. Um, oh, yes, and, course, and we certainly did. <laughs> we did. We did many and, times. It, but it's so amazing because we started out shooting. I mean, it took a long time to set it all up and then rehearse it through the house. Yeah. And then start filming. But every time we filmed, if there was one person that made a mistake, we'd cut it and start, well, you would cut it and we'd start again. So I think I must have sung that song about, I don't know, 40 times in one day. I, I would say probably about 40 times, yeah. Your voice really held up. I mean, it's incredible. Because actually, that's another thing that is very unusual about Lost in the Memory, is that it's not just a music video. In fact, it's not really a music video because music videos are obviously synced. Um, you know, you'll mime to playback like Weekend was mimed, right? Because that's the yeah. process of music video. We were actually recording the audio. So the audio had just as much significance as uh, the visuals, which is not yeah. ever the case in music videos, which means we might have had a perfect take from the visual standpoint. But if yeah. the audio wasn't right, because the, the original idea was to, you know, uh, yeah. the original idea, sorry, the original idea was to um, uh, to have that actually act as, I, th I believe, the song on, on Square One. Um Raw, very much kind of inspired by uh, Astral Weeks. You know, this idea yeah. of let's just record it and see what happens. And so if you remember the acoustics in the in the place that we recorded, it was so incredible. And depending on where you walked around, it would change the tone of the song. I know. Um, well, that was the inspiration of the whole thing, really. I mean, from the very get-go, it was how can I how can I do a recording in this place and, 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 and capture these different ambiences? And it was so much fun. I think this... This particular video was it was a great thing to make with you because it was a a great insight for me on on an element of filmmaking which was so it was like a real team special you know teamwork yeah everyone yeah, yeah. was in it together and everyone had to really work together often on film sets and very much so on weekend everyone there's a more of a hierarchy of, yeah, of, of yeah, chain right. of command it didn't yeah. feel like that way on Lost in the Memory. No, it was the most collaborative thing I've ever made, actually. Um, really? And it really was, yeah. And I say that because um, usually there is there is kind of... It, it can become territorial, even if you have a very accessible set uh, on a film set. And even if you're the type of director, or if you're working with a producer that likes to make sure that everybody feels included. And that's ten that tends to be how I like to work. I like to make sure that everybody feels like they're part of the process. I don't believe, you know, in any way that the director should be the dictator. It should really be... It's one role, and the, the DOP is another role, and they're all significant. Um, but there's still, as you said, an element of hierarchy and everybody has to kind of fall into a certain protocol in order to make something work. But in this case, the audio section uh, had, you know, it was just as important as the visuals. We all had to work together to make it work. That meant that, you know, if my clumsy feet kept on knocking a microphone or, or you know, stepping on f uh, floor floorboards, it would destroy what you guys were trying to do and we'd have to start again and vice versa. If... You know, like if, if the take wasn't particularly good or the focus wasn't good or you stepped out of the light, you know, even if your vocals were amazing, it meant that the picture wouldn't work either. So mm. the focus and the concentration um, and the team aspect of it is completely unparalleled. I've never seen anything like it. And I remember when we got it, because it was the very last take we did before the light dropped. And Alfred Thurl, who's the director of photography, kept on saying, it's going to be the last one because I know the light's going to be perfect. And then we did it. And I remember everybody just paused. We looked at playback on the video. You checked playback on the audio. Audio is great, video is great, and everybody just 
jumps up into this massive embrace, <laughs> and it was this kind of very, very, very rare euphoric moment that you don't often get. Yeah, it was, it was beautiful, it, really beautiful. It really, it really was. was pure um, raw filmmaking, is what it was. You don't get that very often. Yeah, you've done a lot of films now. You've done a lot of different. Not so much. I mean, you've done a lot of music videos. Is that correct? You've especially yeah, done a lot yeah, of music. Yeah. You've you've made um, in particular. You devoted your three or four or five years of your life to one big film that you made about an yeah. artist. In hindsight, what was the process of making that film? Um, well, so he considers himself a, an artist genuinely it's not yeah. he's not being facetious it's not a joke he really does think of himself as an artist and do you would you call him an artist yeah i actually i do think so because he has a consistent thread amongst everything that he does and there's there's actual application of thought and consistency to to what he does so it's not yeah. just a chance thing of him saying oh i'm just going to go and do this there is a process that runs through every single stunt he's pulled right and he calls it performance art and he's very consistent with what he does and how he does it. Mm. You know, some people will say that it's um, it's more like vandalism, but there have been entire art movements like the Stuckist movement that have been based mm. around that concept, which have been legitimized by the fine art community. And the thing about the art world is it's it's all about hype and it's all about having a good PR person because yeah. the difference between a Damien Hirst uh, post-fame and pre-fame is millions of pounds. Um, yeah. But there's nothing that's different in the art. It's just about whatever is decided, you know, is, is worthy of spending that money and whoever wants to buy that. They put the value on something immediately. So I never expected it to be a feature film. Uh, I thought it was going to be a short film. And uh, a friend of mine, uh, Dylan Harvey, who ended up making the film with, he had met this guy through uh, some uh, questionable meat. Shall we just say what the film is called? Because we didn't... Yeah, so the, sorry, the film is called The Banksy Job and it's about uh, a self-proclaimed auto-political terrorist called AK-47 who is the leader and front man of the Art Qaeda, uh, <laughs> art terrorist organization. It, yeah. And um, it's loosely about, it's a real story, it's a documentary heist film is the way that it was marketed, I suppose. And it's about this guy, AK-47, who uh, rose to fame for stealing a Banksy statue that was about 20 foot tall in the middle of London. And he held it to ransom. And for the first time ever, Banksy came out of hiding uh, to address the situation. And this very bizarre feud between the two of them that lasted about 12 years, uh, ended up unfolding, um, resulting in this statue, which was worth about a million quid, being stolen, stolen back, stolen back again, remade, stolen again. And it ended up being this very, very bizarre kind of endless saga and a battle of wits. Um, and ultimately, it's just about one aspiring artist just wanting respect from a much bigger, bigger artist. And did, did he ever story. gain respect from Banksy? Well, Banksy... I, I mean, aside from the fact that Banksy came out in The Guardian and did an entire... Um, well, I did three interviews with Simon Hatterston, um, all about AK-47. Um, so aside from that, which in itself is kind of a mark of respect, when, uh, when the statue was put back, but modified, it became... So just a, a quick short thing on this. It started off as a pastiche of Rodin's The Thinker with a traffic cone on its head, and suddenly it became The Drinker. And then when AK-47 uh, appropriated it, he didn't steal it, but he appropriated it. You mean Banksy it. made it The Drinker? Banksy made it the drinker, yeah. So it was a complete pastiche of Rodin's The Thinker. The only difference was it had a traffic cone on its head and therefore yeah. it became the drinker, according to Banksy. So what AK-47 did was effectively the same thing that Banksy did to Rodin. He took it, put a toilet seat on the back of it and uh, he called it the stinker. Uh, then he put it back out again. <laughs> yeah. So as far as he was concerned, this is this is kind of, um, you know, traditional uh, world of street art, which is what you do. You know, you tag a wall, somebody else comes along and they adapt it, they modify it. 
and that's yeah. just understood and Banksy comes from the world of street art so AK-47 felt like he was just honouring this tradition um, but Banksy didn't quite see it that way and Banksy's manager definitely didn't see it that way especially when it turned out that AK-47 could potentially sell this statue for a million quid uh, kept in its back garden in, in Hackney so it kind of changed the dynamic a little bit um, <laughs> so let's go back to you I I understand that making a documentary is an incredibly unpredictable scenario yeah. and very tenuous in terms of is it going to become a film that's yeah, worth yeah. worthy of watching or people will be yeah, actually yeah. be interested so that must have been a question going through your mind throughout the entire pro how long did it take uh all in all um i was on it for about five years through to uh having the release in tribeca um so in new york um so it's, it's a long festival. time so how yeah, did you the... did you go through some difficult moments making it yeah we did we had quite uh, so at the beginning stages it was very quick so I, I'll, I'll give you a very brief rundown of what happened um yeah, we found I the do. story i met ak-47 uh, he's an extremely charismatic guy. Some people find him very, very irritating. Um, I found him larger than life, and I found him very funny. Um, but also, he had a legitimate story, and he, he was authentic, and he was a true original too. So he told me the full story, and he'd recorded everything. Um, but the interesting thing, the bit that I found interesting, wasn't necessarily the stuff that he recorded or his story. It was that he he was an unreliable narrator who thought he was a reliable narrator. And by that, I mean... Okay. He would tell me that he had thousands of members of the Art Qaeda and he had proof mm. because he had it on film and he really believed this. But then when we looked at the mini DV tapes, <laughs> it's him and five people getting high in his living room. But he was convinced <laughs> that this was, that he really was kind of a James Bond villain, right? So every single story he told had an element of truth, but his version of the truth was just so heightened and so for me, the angle was, because I'm more of a visual director, you know, I, I, when it comes to directing um, documentary, I don't really want to do fly in the wall documentary. I prefer to take as, as visual approach as possible and try and make it look as cinematic as, as I possibly can. And yeah. so I started realizing that we could try and show the world through his eyes, but then contradict it with the real footage and show how AK-47 sees the world, you know, by having an underground lair in this giant warehouse in the middle of nowhere with thousands of these AK-47 operatives all in their boiler suits and gas masks and whatever the uniform is of the Art Qaeda um, but then show the archive footage and show that actually you know even though <laughs> even though technically it's true his version of that or the way that he sees it is very very different to how other people might see it um, but it's still it's still kind of true so you had the sticky situation of trying to or were you trying to help him portray his image or were you rather doing something like displaying a total uh, inadequate kind of storytelling yeah, a co combination of both combination of both i mean he's he's sort of he's very sensitive but he's also quite self-aware and he clocked yeah. on about halfway through that part of this was about taking the piss but since his motto is to take the piss he couldn't really get too annoyed about it because that's what he's you know supposedly lives for but the first time he saw it he was uh the first time he saw a rough cut he was very upset but then the second time he saw it, he burst into tears and he was, he felt like we suddenly captured something and he, and he really And that was it. the final um, cut? No, we did a couple more cuts after that with different audio and some, some different edits. Um, there were a couple of times where he really started to feel that maybe we were taking advantage of him um, and we had to try and win back his trust. And, you know, for us, it's, we're just making a film or at least I'm just making a film. 
Um, but it's easy to forget, and you'll you understand, you'll appreciate this, that it's his likeness, it's his representation that's going to be seen on a big screen. And actually, there's a there's a responsibility to make sure that we're not we're not making fun of him. You know, yeah, I love yeah. the guy. It reminds me of um, I uh, one of my podcasts is with Thomas Peter, and he's a photojournalist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, he was telling me about having to win win people's trust over, like in the Ukraine war, having yeah, to win over sure, people's yeah, yeah. trust who just lost their home, um, and. Um, and it's a very fragile thing that you have to respect, mm. no matter who yeah. it is, and whether you, whether you agree with them or not. You, you, if they're going to give you their trust, especially in a, and let them into your their life, you have to respect that. Yeah, Much yeah. like I do, have to respect someone's trust doing a podcast. You know, it's, absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um, Res- respect is the key word, and I, and I think you you do have a responsibility once they put that trust into you. You know, you have to make sure that. Um, that, that you're treating them with respect and actually taking them seriously. And even if they're comical, I mean, AK-47, is a, you've met him, he's a comical of guy. Of course, but there's but a serious person under there as well. There is. There's there's a Someone guy that's living and breathing in, in yeah, and, and got sensitivity and insecurities like the rest of us. Yeah. And it, the whole film and his whole mission has always been to be accepted in a world that doesn't traditionally accept people from a working class background and is quite elitist. Right. And yeah. you know all he's ever wanted is to be taken seriously, and and the guy has an unbelievable knowledge about art history, artists. He has a real talent of spotting and developing emerging artists, and he's very respected in that world. Um, there are lots and lots of artists like Stick London, who will credit AK as being one of the guys that gave him their first break. Um, Sarah Pope, who's doing very very well now, he's been really responsible for that. So, um, Ian, when like now you've made. How many, is that your only feature film, or has there been? Yeah, has there been, that's my yeah. only feature film. So and you've made you, you've made a bunch of music videos and and, and also uh, commercials, right? I mean, you do commercials. Yeah. Like, what's your favorite medium between those three disciplines? If you could only do one constantly, which one would it be? Oh, that's really tough because uh, so I do I do commercials um, because it's it's bread and butter is you know is primarily how you make sure. a living if you are lucky enough to direct um, commercials are the means through which you actually get to you know uh, eat <laughs> and live yeah, yeah um, sure there's no money generally in music videos you do it for the love of doing it um, and feature films is the pure storytelling um, element but. What I think people don't understand is that um, there's only about 1% of directors who actually get to make money from feature films. Um, it is so difficult, especially for indie filmmaking, and the UK has not got a thriving film industry. Very, very difficult to get to that point where you make enough money to actually do it, and, and you know where it becomes a sustainable career. Um, yeah. So you almost have to subsidize yourself by doing something else. Um, but music videos are one of my, they've always been one of my great passions. Um, the, the problem is, a lot of the music videos that get made these days are not necessarily the type of videos that I like to make. Um, yeah. You know, I grew up in the era of, uh, I sound like an old man talking about, you know, my day, but like Spike Jones, Michelle Gondry, and uh, Chris Cunningham, yeah, Jonathan Glazer, yeah. Hammer Songs. The golden age, yeah, in very many Just ways, yeah. Incredible, really incredible, man. And I can um, remember really, like, really couldn't wait to, to see yeah. the next video by them. The Bjork yeah, videos it. and the white stripes and it's just like oh, just know, amazing, yeah, incredible. But yeah, I mean the fact that you could actually at one point you could go and buy a DVD of their work of just music videos mm. was not something that was ever you know you would never have got that a while back. And so they really, yeah. really uh, did such a great job of transcending the medium. 
and showing the potential of what it could be. The problem is um, you don't often get an opportunity to make those kind of videos and that's why it existed for a brief period of time. And you know now you don't get that quite as much. Do you think it's got anything to do with budgets and how budgets have changed now that streaming kicked in, now that anyone can be a filmmaker? You know, oh, 100%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, nobody like, wants it. There's there's no use in spending. Because you have to remember that, I think, back in the day, it was a marketing tool. Um, and you'll know this better than anybody. A music video was such a great way, if you made a great video, of, first of all, just having a visual to the songs so that you could actually identify the artist. But um, especially, you know, about 15 years ago, if a video went viral, you're talking about the best form of free marketing um, because nothing yeah. spreads. Suddenly you've got millions of yeah. people checking out a video and it's just like, you know, you can't really buy that without spending a lot of money. So, you know. Yeah, and also, I mean, whether whether you liked it or disliked it, there was MTV, which we could make That's a, right. could completely yeah, yeah, yeah. blow up a track. Like completely, Nirvana, yeah, yeah. And, you know, yeah, the hip hop. Well, that, that's right. I mean, that's how. So, if you look at um, certain acts like OK Go, their whole career was was really um, built around music videos. Um, yeah, they had one viral time. video that kicked everything off, and then that was it. They knew that they needed to top the last one, and it drove sales. And in a, in a way, it kind of became this thing where the more creative they could be, which is the only time it's ever happened, actually, the more yeah. that they could generate, you know, um, generate sales, and, and their success would go up. And um, yeah. Um, it was actually now, think, it was actually the wife of the singer I think which who is the creative mastermind that's right in that for the treadmills especially yeah yeah for the treadmill yeah that's that. where it all started um, wasn't it that's it yeah so you so you haven't said which one you if you had no money constraints which one oh would uh, be? Fe fe feature films without a doubt yeah so that's yeah, pure storytelling I mean yeah we've we've yeah. both talked so much about feature films but like um so let's get to your love of that and what drove you towards film like what was it is there ever a moment in your life when you you had that flash of light that when i this is what i want to do or, or was it a gradual thing um, or did it start no the 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 well there wasn't so i i come from a pretty humble background and where i grew up i, don't, I didn't grow up with money uh my, my parents were kind of a low economic uh, family um and uh, the small town that i grew up in which is a place called Fareham, um in the south of england um people don't become filmmakers it's not you know you don't have a route or a path to any artistic artistic industry um yeah Basically, you, you get into sales or you get into cleaning or you get into building trade. Most of my friends are you know, builders or, you know, tradesmen, basically. Um, so uh, it's not necessarily, there's no, there, there's not a realistic pathway to do that. It's not, you know, there's, there's just, you don't have prospects. Um, and Ferrum is so far away from London, not just mm. geographically, but in terms of the culture that, uh, you know, it's just a far away dream. Um but my dad was an aspiring actor when he grew up and he was a real film buff. So I was raised with films of Kurosawa and David Lean and, you know, all these old classic films, French New Wave films, Truffaut and, and so forth. And um, so I didn't realise that that was kind of uh, unconventional until years later. But I was watching all of David Lean's epics and, you know, classic Japanese cinema with my dad as like a six-year-old kid. Um, oh. So... I was getting this real understanding of acting because my dad, as I said, he trained as an actor. He never never made it as an actor, but he wanted to be an actor. And I'm getting a real understanding of filmmaking at a really young age. Um, yeah. And then 
the other thing that happened is I, lo- I, I spent about a year and a half in my bedroom because I got agoraphobia when I was younger um, and I didn't leave agoraphobia my room. Agoraphobia is the fear yeah, of going for, outside, right? Fear of going outside, yeah. So effectively, I was just stuck in my bedroom. Uh, <laughs> Did you actually, with, do you remember the fear that you had of going outside? Yeah, although it's, it's a strange thing now because it, it's almost like an out-of-body experience. When I look back, it's just looking down at somebody, you know, uh, somebody completely different. But I definitely I definitely have very, very vivid memories of being, um, you know, uh, extremely frightened and confused child, basically, and just being convinced that if I went outside, my family would die. It was pretty bleak looking back. It was just... But again, it's one of those yeah. things where it's only years later that I realised how how bizarre the whole thing was. Because when you're living through it, you don't quite understand that it's you know that it's it's not right. Um, you were how old? I was just. It was the first. I missed the first year and a half of secondary school. So I guess uh, ten, eleven. I guess eleven to twelve and a half, which is probably the worst wow. time to do that. Yeah, it's your That's formative so years. Young. Yeah, it was really young, and it was a real. I mean, it was so difficult for my parents. Uh, and actually, the rest of my family, my brother and my sister as well, because yeah. nobody could understand what was going on with me, and you know, I just started gradually getting this psychosomatic illness as a result of it, and uh, you know, getting weaker and weaker and stuff. Um, but all I could do was watch films, and I became obsessed with films. So hang on, so you've just thrown a whole ton of things at me there. So <laughs> I asked you how you um, you got into film, and then you told me you're agoraphobic, and then you told me that at the same time you developed a psychosomatic disorder, and um, yeah, 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 it reminds me of my of a song on my record called Echo, where I say, "Built these walls to hide behind." Now I'm bouncing round inside like an echo. Oh, I love you, that. That's you great. must have felt a bit like that, uh, or or not. I don't know. I mean, you were 11 years old, so no. What happens is you become really comfortable uh, in in this space. You become so conditioned to it that the idea of leaving it, this comfort, um, becomes terrifying. Everything, all anxiety that you feel is outside, right? Right. So you just want to stay there because that's what you know and that's what you can control. Big part of it was lots and lots of my family started dying in close proximity all around the same time. Uh, All my grandparents died at the same time. My uncle died on Christmas. It was really, you know, there's a lot of people that started just passing away. And it became this thing where it was a bit too much to process, I think, right. now looking back on it. And um, I needed to control something. So this idea of, okay, well, if I can just stay here, then I won't need to worry about that because everything is here. Yeah. I can control that. Nobody can tell me what to do. I don't have the fear. Closer to my family, I didn't really want to leave my mum, my, um, my dad's, you know. And um, it just became this kind of unhealthy thing. And they were trying to figure out what to do about it. Um, and it's really difficult to to do anything about this kind of thing because then of course what happened is almost as a as a sort of safety measure but i started getting sick and then i was in and out of hospital all the time so anytime i would leave is to go to hospitals so i would spend endless time in the hospitals with these crippling migraines and nosebleeds that would last three days and stuff and then back to my bedroom again where i would just stay um you know <laughs> my parents tried everything and then uh and then i sort of did you eat properly no, I got really fat as well. Wow. <laughs> so they were trying, but I wasn't exercising. So I, I say eat properly. When you're not exercising, when you don't, you don't even leave your bed, uh, you know, you just end up putting on a lot of weight. It's just so. I was a skinny kid, and then by the time I finally went back to school, the the main thing was I'd I'd really I got you know I got really fat, and then I didn't lose the weight again until I was about sixteen. I started running and and uh, going to the gym, and then got very 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 skinny <laughs> for a while. <laughs> 
Because <laughs> I became obsessed with... I think I sort of replaced one thing with another thing. I became obsessed with fitness and just running all the time. It's a sort of yeah. form of therapy, in a way. You know, going to the gym every day. So. Uh, I have... I mean, I developed a psychosomatic mm. disorder at that same age, um, which yeah, is yeah. my back. And, and it you know, became my, my thing. Uh, did it go... Th- did it continue out through your life? Or did you... So what happened is... Um, uh, I... It was the migraines. I, I was basically, I suppose, in a way, you could say the way to describe it to the uninitiated is uh, you, you're willing yourself to have pain, right? Right. So in my case, I was willing myself to have these migraines that were so crippling. Um, and so we ended up finding this this specialist who uh, had designed this device called an impulse. And what I was led to believe was that this impulse would send these these kind of electro magnetic waves or something to your brain which would help control um you know which would help control the migraines so i had to go through these whole series of cat scans and 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 whatnot and stuff so they could try and see these frequencies um but i now realize that this was probably a placebo (laughs) that wasn't real it wasn't real and uh but it probably wasn't real it probably was almost this device that i was given to help control migraines so i was told I was told that it uh, when I went through puberty, there was a chance that I might be able to get over this. Yeah. Right? Um, but I kept this thing around my neck for the next, you know, the next several years, and I would never take it off. So it meant that if I went into the sea, I couldn't get it wet, but I would have to go waist level, and I'd keep my t-shirt on, and I always have to have it. Whoa. And then when I was about, I kept this on until I was about probably sixteen, um, and everybody just knew me as this having this thing around my neck all the time that would stop these these migraines. And then this bizarre moment happened where I was on a beach. And uh, and I suddenly just had this thought that maybe this thing wasn't actually real. It might just be a placebo, uh, and that the whole thing was completely in my head. And so I just went in the sea and I broke it. And uh, my parents were freaking out, but I was just like, no, 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 I don't need it. It's not real. I just everything makes sense. I just oh I just God. lost my mind for like five years. Whoa! And I've ever since I've been completely yeah. It was a really bizarre moment because but, but what it's done is it sounds so strange, but I've got such a distinct memory of it. It means that I've always had a lifelong perspective ever since because I understand the power of the mind uh, and what you can do with the mind. Yeah. And so now I have this whole, this whole thing where you know um, everything is controllable if you understand what your brain can do. Because if I can be tricked into stopping having migraines from a device that's just effectively a piece of plastic, you know that shows you the uh, the potency of, of your brain. Man, it's like um, I feel like you had an experience at eleven years old, or eleven to fifteen, or sixteen years old. Yeah, yeah. That most people have when they hit like forty, and uh, you know, and they can't take life. <laughs> I, I don't want to draw myself as an yeah, example. Yeah, a little bit but, like that. Yeah, you know, it's taken me that many years to to understand what's going on for me, and um, after trying everything. Sure. And, yeah. Yeah. Um, but. And, and for me, I had to have some big shifts in in the way I see that see the yeah, world, sure, see myself. Yeah, yeah. And and yeah. but this experience you're talking about of going to the sea that was a very big paradigm shift for you. Where oh yeah, it was you were like yeah, oh yeah. this this is a different sense of reality and the lens through which you see the world in that totally. split moment. It, it everything changed genuinely. It sounds it sounds really theatrical. The whole thing sounds you know so ridiculous, but it really it was a complete epiphany moment. And my entire perspective on life shifted and, and it's remained the, the same way ever since. I mean, obviously I've learned and developed and I've grown. Um, but it was just it was, it, the realisation of how, how you can control your entire perspective um, if you understand how powerful the brain is, how powerful the mind is and what it can do to your body, both 
positively and negatively. Um, and so now if yeah. I'm in a bad state, I don't really get in the bad state anymore. But if I am, I kind of have this idea that, well, you know, it's all it's all relative. It's all a matter of perspective. You just have to find a way to kind of, you know, um, see that actually it's not too bad. And so this is so this is the, also the formative years of your developing, uh, grow, growing passion for film. But you also told me once that you were a gamer like an obsessive gamer and yeah, is that yeah, the same yeah. period of time did you, was it when no, you were agoraphobic no, no. This, this was uh, no not really although i've always been into games so i've always been into gaming but this was kind of um this was actually a little bit later because um. <laughs> you told me like you were really like properly obsessed with gaming yeah yeah for a while yeah i i almost failed my degree because i i sort of almost went into professional gaming at one point and uh right. turning up to just practice 15 hour days but I was much older oh, so at that you... point. I was already about twenty when that happened, and uh, okay. then realised I'd okay. probably better stop um, and <laughs> focus on what I really wanted to do, which was filmmaking. Oh, so, so that was that was just like you were just like it was just a passion. It was a folly. I, but you were, I just but got it's... really obsessed with Mario Kart. Is what happened. I just got really, <laughs> <laughs> I just got really into Mario Kart, but to the point where I end up playing competitively and getting ranked for a, for a brief period in in sort of international tournaments and things like that online. And they, Online, yeah, then got to kind of a top ten position where suddenly it was just like, oh, this might be a thing that I could actually do, but it was it was outrageously stupid, you know. It was just uh, no, but it's not. I mean, there well, now are it's people not. out there yeah, earning yeah. money. Well, now now it's it's very much a viable industry, but the whole um, you know this whole kind of thing of e gaming as they call it, esports, that that didn't exist really. It was only in its formative years when I started when I first started really getting into gaming. And uh, and it it wasn't the sort of behemoth industry that it is now. Now yeah. it's you know um, you get these guys that are making insane amounts of money from gaming, yeah. and it's yeah, it's treated yeah. as seriously as any kind of sport. You know these kids yeah. are tapped up at a very young age, and they have to commit, and they've got to train, and it's it's bizarre. You know it's a really there's so, probably a documentary so, uh, in there somewhere. There is a document. I've seen it. It's I can't remember what it's called, but it's uh it's good. It's on Netflix. It's very interesting. So as I'm a I'm a dad I'm a parent as you know you you're not you don't have kids and mm. um um and you're not married are you no 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 you're not married no, no. no but you have a very long term girlfriend yeah, who, yeah. who's in the same industry as you yeah and um like when you look back at this moment I mean as a parent a parent would often be very worried about mm. a kid being sat in front of, of of computer games for too long yeah yeah how do you see that whole thing. Well, I actually think that I learned so many valuable skills from playing video games growing up. Um, and uh, Like what? Like, well, just things like focus levels, uh, you know, cognitive abilities, problem solving. Um, you're effectively training your brain. And there's, there's a huge amount of research that's gone into the benefits of, of video gaming. But like all things, same watching films. If you watch films all day and do nothing else, that's detrimental to your health. You play video games all day. That's also detrimental to your health. Um, but um, yeah. you know the best video games are—they're not only uh, you know effectively puzzle solving in real time, and some some of it's actually very sophisticated. In, in a way, you're talking about um, you know film is passive, but video games it, you know you're involved directly. You have choice, and there are ramifications, and the good ones make you feel guilt and you can't get that from watching a film really so it's very interesting uh, yeah. there's a whole potential avenue for interactive storytelling um where you have a choice you know you have a choice to do something that you know is potentially going to affect a character within a game or you choose to ignore it 
And the idea of freedom and exploration is something that I really love. I love that idea. I like that in real. I like hiking. I like that in real world. I like that in video games. I like the idea that I can see a door in the distance and the horizon, and I have the choice to either go through that door or ignore it completely and never see it and go in a different direction. And that 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 power yeah. is amazing. That's really enticing to me, especially as a filmmaker and a storyteller. I love that. You know, I'm effectively yeah. I'm creating a story in real time just through choice and what's presented to me on a, on a screen. I think it's amazing. You know. So, yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 And also hand-eye coordination, you know, just all basic things like that. They're actually, there's huge amounts of benefits. The downside is if that becomes your entire life and your entire existence uh, and you stop, you know, developing social skills to actually talk to real people, um, I don't think that's healthy. And I would be concerned <laughs> at that point, you know, because also the thing is, is that there is there is kind of an aspect of gaming that's an illusion where, especially if you're into online gaming, which I don't, I don't really do anymore. I mean, I don't really game that much full stop anymore, but... Um, you have this idea that you are socializing because you're interacting with people, right? But it's a very, very primitive form of interaction and form of socializing that isn't conducive to actual face-to-face, -face, you know, uh, communication. Yeah. And it's like all things, you have to develop those skills. And what happens is once, once you, once you, you know, once you lose the ability to talk to somebody in real life, very difficult to get that back. Um, I mean, in my situation, when I was in my room, I didn't talk to anybody for like a year and a half. I mean, I didn't have anybody, wow. any interaction at all. So I was even your parents and your just my parents. That was it. Sisters? But outside of the, the the scope, except for doctors, outside of of you know the walls of my house, I had no social. I had no friends anymore. I didn't talk to anybody, and so it was this weird thing of having to figure out how to actually talk to people again. I was cripplingly shy for the next probably the next year and a half. Because you talked about your like so many people in your family dying, do you think it was almost like the desire to want to get back in the womb, like being afraid of not only death but life itself as well? Yeah, I think so. Pretty being much. in your being in your being in your bedroom is almost representative of, of being back in the womb in that yeah, safe, yeah. safe space in your mum's tummy. That's exactly Maybe it. That could be. It's about safety. It's about comfort. It's about control. Because there's all those things that happen unconsciously for us. I mean, that's going into agoraphobic yeah, yeah. situation. It's a very unconscious decision, I guess. It's not, you didn't sit down and go, right, I'm going to spend <laughs> the next year in my room talking to absolutely no one and getting fat. Yeah. I don't think that was your, that was a, a conscious plan. No, no. <laughs> well, I hope it wasn't. Um, I don't think many kids of that age make conscious plans. And and um, and my, you know, through um, psychosomatic sort of explorations I've done, mm. it all comes down to the unconscious. Oh, yeah, it yeah. all comes down to these, these decisions that we make unconsciously. Do you think that filmmaking also taps into that for you in a way that, like, are you ever conscious of the unconscious and how the sort of game you can play with people on, an, um, on a conscious and an unconscious level? Yeah, you are. You, you are uh, to an extent. Um, it's a difficult thing because I think every filmmaker wants to, uh, wants to say that they rely on their instincts, just like every actor wants to rely on their instincts, right? But, you know, and to some degree if you're set up enough with enough preparation, you can do that. But the, the truth is, filmmaking is all about preparation. Yeah. It's all about preparation. It doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter what kind of filmmaker you are, you're not making a film unless you have done incredible amounts of preparation. So much of the work is done in prep. So there are very, very few accidents that happen. Yeah. And, you know, if you look at some filmmakers like the Coen brothers, there are no accidents on those set. You know, right. the actors do not deviate from the lines cinematographer does not deviate from the storyboards everything is planned out meticulously 
But, you know, sometimes, and there's a, very, there's a precision about that work that you can see on the screen, um, but it feels, sometimes it does feel like there must have been moments that just, that were just magic that just happened. I mean, I refuse to believe when you look at Jeff Bridges' uh, Jeff Lebowski, yeah. you know, that there aren't moments there that nobody anticipated that just happened on a subconscious level that are just... Yeah magic oh yeah, yeah it looks like that i mean it really looks like that the jeff bridges stuff and yeah it's incredible how how spontaneous it feels yeah, yeah so um you know i think i find what i find so fascinating about you is 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 how you you know what's fueled your story i mean the fact that you 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 were stuck in your room for that long you then had to your weight changed mm. then you became you had all these psychosomatic disorders but there's one other thing you've mentioned and that's there's not many people i meet who have type a diabetes oh yeah it's a one yeah, and, yeah. And, and and that's another part of your your life that you have to, you have to sort of work with still today yeah 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 to this day and um but that's not certainly not psychosomatic, is it? No, no, that's an autoimmune virus. So um, that happened when I was. And a lot of most people I meet now have type two diabetes, we, but yours is not that. It's not. No, mine isn't reversible. But we, we we do know that type two can be reversed with a combination of not not for everybody. I don't want to make that perfectly clear, but with a combination of diet, with exercise, and and real discipline, you can you can reverse type two diabetes. Type one. The reason they're named the same is because there are superficial similarities between the two conditions. But but type one is actually an autoimmune virus, which has more in common with like multiple sclerosis um, or you know any other yeah. autoimmune virus, even something like Parkinson's. It's effectively um, your immune cells kind of go kamikaze, mistaking uh, an aspect of your body as a virus. In my case, the pancreas, and so I don't produce insulin, um, and it just happened overnight, um, and that's. It happened overnight. It just happened overnight. Yeah, yeah. So I turned twenty-four. When? Was what age? Twenty-four. Um, <gasps> I was unbelievable. Like you know, I told you, I got into fitness. I was really healthy. I was obsessed with you know three percent body fat. I was kind of you know, <sighs> I worked out seven days a week. Really into fitness. I had a very very good diet. I got a common cold, and uh, I was shooting a documentary at the time. I was directing a, a, a film, and. I was, I was pretty lean, but I started losing a lot of weight very, very quickly. And um, I would have conversations and I would just start falling asleep in the middle of conversations like an narcoleptic or something. And uh, I started going to the toilet um, every 10 minutes. I had to run to the loo and do these kind of really, you know, really long pees. And what happened is because at the time, I, I, I by this point, having spent like a year and a half obviously in my room and been quite a sick kid, I just didn't get sick anymore, and I just never went to the doctor. In my head, it was always like, "Ah, oh, I don't need anything." You know, I can, I can always. Yeah, okay. So, so you're from one extreme to the to other. To the other, yeah, yeah. If I was sick, I'd be like, "Oh, fine. It's a matter of will. It's you know, it's mind's perspective. I can still go to the gym or work out. I'll be all right." So I just never, you know, I just never really got too sick. I was very healthy, um, but I was definitely, definitely not in a good way. But I didn't know what was going on with me, and I had these weird cravings for sugar, and so I would sometimes get like four, literally four whole cartons of orange juice. And I would just get up and be like, oh, I need orange juice, like a vampire. Middle of the night, I would just neck these cartons of orange juice. And of course, what was happening is my body wasn't sustaining any of the sugar. Um, and I was, that's why I was peeing so much yeah. as well. And then eventually, we were going so behind schedule uh, on the documentary shooting because of my toilet breaks that the producer said, you, oh, wow. you've got to go to, there's something wrong with you. And you've got to go to the hospital. And I was making a film about um, 
this community who had basically started up a sports program for uh, underprivileged kids in East London. It was really it's it an amazing thing that they were doing. And um, the guy that one of the main guys that we were interviewing, obviously, he was a sports specialist, started becoming pretty sure that I was diabetic. He was just, I think you've got type one diabetes because my whole uh, physiology changed my physical you know i started turning yellow um and i started having these oh, incredible wow. spasms that were really painful and i thought i had a urine infection because i did an internet diagnosis so i started having loads of serious stuff so i finally went to the doctor first time in years and uh this nurse asked me to uh to do a urine sample and then she took one look at this urine sample and said that like, you've got type 1 diabetes and like, i don't even need to test wow. you this is you've got type 1 diabetes so I didn't really know much about type 1 diabetes. And I said, oh, right, okay, what do I do now? <laughs> she said, well, you've got to go to a hospital right away. So she checked my glycogen levels, which is what you have to do as a type 1. And an average person has between a level reading of about 4, four to 7 is normal. And mine was on 38, I think, uh, which is incredibly dangerous. And the last thing that happens before you go into a diabetic coma is you have the spasms that I was starting to have regularly because I basically stayed this way for months and not dealt with it. Um, so she said, We've, you've got to go right away. So I left, I went and met my friend for lunch. <laughs> I said, I just got tired of a tight one day. He's over a big, you know, sweet potato and some tuna. And, uh, he was like, my sister's got tight one day. You've got to go to the hospital now. So I was just like, oh God, everyone's freaking Whoa. out. So went to the hospital and then, yeah, they, they gave me needles and stuff and gave me like a crash course, one hour crash course and what I needed to do. Uh, and then that was it for the rest of my life, injecting five or six times a day and uh, injecting. Right, right. That's yeah. you have to, you're, yeah, to control your insulin. And yeah. So I'm trying to emulate what the human body does, uh, and yeah. you get a, an appreciation for how sophisticated the human body really is. Because when you try and emulate it, mm. it, it is not easy. It is a difficult thing no. to do. It really is. It's very hard. So, so I wanted, I wanted to ask you, uh, you know, because I've got. The, Song of mine is called Sweet Tooth, so I just want to ask the simple question: What's your relationship to sugar now? Um, well, so uh, like when you're on set, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, for example, what what, what go, what's going on there? Like, do you ever have dips, or is it? I mean, because yeah, usually yeah, being yeah, on yeah. set, making a film, or do it, doing a sh day of shooting, oh yeah, it's yeah. really long days. It is, yeah. And I can yeah, imagine that you could probably easily for, easily forget to. Yeah, you, or, you, you can. Or, I, I never forget to inject you need a what, chocolate bar nearby or whatever. Well, what does happen is. It's very difficult to explain to people um, what you can and can't eat without sounding like a massive diva. And I'm really self-conscious about sounding like a diva. <laughs> so a lot of the time, rather than making a fuss and saying, yeah, I can't have pizza because uh, pizza will cause me to have a massive spike, which will last for a couple of days, uh, which won't be good. I'll become lethargic and you know, it's, just, it's just not great. A lot of the time, I just won't say anything. I won't eat, which is, you know, not, not great. Um it became really difficult in my feature film because if you're working somewhere very remote, you don't have many options. And effectively, I have to have a kind of very low carb diet. So a lot of what I have is kind of meat and veg, fish and veg and stuff. But right. you know, you know, the, when we were filming, there was no access to that. So you're you're at the yeah. mercy of wherever you're at and whatever's available, um, and that can be quite difficult. Um, but you know, it's it's one of those things where you just have to try your best to regulate and figure out how much insulin to give yourself. Um, but there's no there's no consistency. Your body changes and adapts so much that what might work one week doesn't work the next week. Um, so you could have a right. great week uh, where you're really, you, you know, your, your control is great. And the next week, everything that you're doing suddenly is causing, you know, hyperglycemic attacks or the reverse. You can't get your levels. And if you get sick, like a, you know, a flu or a bug, 
um, then then it's very difficult to control. And at that point, you you, you know you might end up going to hospital for a, for a few days, which happened to me uh, a couple of times, which isn't isn't very much fun. But you know, just no. What can you do? Yeah, you just get imagine. on with it, really. You know, there's not not a huge amount you could do. So you're just like, oh, all right, this is it. You know, fine. You just you just do it. <laughs> Well, I guess it's I guess it's very much when you need someone like Adam Hunt next to you who's totally, who's a very yeah, good yeah, yeah, yeah. Very nurturing. and he's uh, uh, yeah as a, as a producer of the film he's gonna you you can know that he's gonna make sure you'll be you'll be okay. Every morning when we're on set, I get a little box with my name on it, which is uh, been prepared by ads, and it's a little meat meat and veg box every day without <laughs> film. It's the only producer who's ever oh, done it. Amazing. It's great. He knows exactly what he does. It's lovely, man. It's really nice. Yeah. Yeah, and what about in your in your sort of relationship? Like, like I said, your girlfriend is in the same industry. So, I mean, does it affect your relationship? That sort of does it? Do you do you, do you find yourself? Does it hold you back or hold your any anyone no relationship back or are there things you can't do? Or? What with the di- you mean with the diabetes or being in the same industry? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Industry? With that, the lifestyle. No, and, and also. Well, I'm not allowed to get a paddy certificate. <laughs> That's pretty much What's it. What's that? Paddy certificate is where you learn how to scuba dive. So I'm not allowed to scuba dive. Okay, uh, that's it. That's it. Yeah, that's yeah. Great. The rest of it is really at your own discretion. You know, if you've got good control so, yeah, yeah. and you feel confident and you have uh, an understanding of your body enough to know that, you know, the main thing, funny enough, isn't actually the diabetes that puts you at risk. Um, although, you know, the risk of losing your eyes and amputation is extremely high for a diabetic, for a type one diabetic, which is not fun. Wow. But you know, the the main thing is um, the short term risk is actually the medicine can work against you. So you have to give yourself insulin, right? right. But if you give yourself too much insulin, you go into hypoglycemia, and the extreme version of that is where you pass out. <laughs> which the first year wow. of being diabetic, it happened a lot, you know, because I was still running and exercising and that really works against you if you have too much insulin. Sends all your, sh- your levels and stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's it. So yeah. all the time, we're sort of straight down. Um, so now if Oof. like, we went to the Philippines uh, a couple of years ago for three weeks, which was an unbelievably active holiday. We were, it was a kind of an adventure holiday. And the thing I had to be completely conscious about was making sure I had sugar, as much sugar on me as possible at all times. If we were going for these kind of, you know, waterfall hikes or mountain hikes, you know, the, where we were going in Chagao, there aren't even hospitals. So you have to be really careful. And so it is, it, it, it's a, I'm not going to lie, it's an everyday thing. You're always thinking about it every day. There's no, there's no escape from any point. Yeah. But at the same time, it just becomes yeah. part of routine and you just, you just kind of get on with it because you've got no choice. So, you know, and yeah. this is the thing, it goes back to being in my room. It's better than staying in your room for a year and a half. So, you know, it's just, it's all <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. I, um, I'm going to finish off by asking the question I ask all my guests which is related to my song letter from my future self if you can imagine yourself 84 or 85 i mean somewhere around that that age range let's let's say 90 if you want <laughs> uh, and 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 old ian roderick gray is sitting and writing a letter to present day ian roderick gray what would he be telling you what what do you think? What kind of advice do you think you could give yourself as a wiser, older man? Oh, that is a good question. That is, that's that's a good question, man. Um, well, in a, let's put it another way, maybe. What is it that you think you haven't yet learned that you you could keep you could work on? Well, I think yeah, that's a really good question. 
I mean, I, you know, because my whole philosophy is that you always have to keep learning, right? Every day you have to try and learn. You got to do something else. You can always grow. You should never, you should never sort of rest in laurels and all of that jazz and stuff. Um, anything that I'm going to tell myself at the age of 90, I'm going to be like, yeah, I know, I know. That's what I'm trying to do. <laughs> Leave me alone. I'm trying to do it already. It's like giving me a hard time. Back away. Um, I've got to be more proactive when it comes to getting back into feature films and just giving myself a routine that is conducive to writing again, I think is the main thing from a professional standpoint and from a, from a sort yeah. of personal standpoint. I think it's, um, it's okay to appreciate if I'm doing okay at any given moment without constantly saying, no, no, I need to be doing better. You know, there has to, it's, it's a bit of a cliche, but there has to be a moment sometimes I think, and I don't do this very well. And even as Jess actually, well, we both stop and say, we've done all right. You know, we do, we're doing quite well. We've, we, we should be proud of ourselves. It's always, everything is always the next stage, the next stage. Um, and I'm sure it's probably similar it to you as well, because if you're driven yeah, of course. and you're creative, that's what you're always thinking. It's just like, I need to be here. I'm really, yeah, I'm really, really doing my best to practice that, that thing right now. Yeah. And a part of my album is all about that. It's just yeah, about yeah. practicing. I think gratitude is the key. Oh yeah, you know, absolutely. Yeah, uh, yeah. By by wanting more and wanting, it's all about wanting what you don't already have. And That's it. Even if those, even if those things are unrealized yeah. dreams or images in your imagination. Yeah, uh, you yeah. Know, it's we haven't we haven't made them real yet, and yeah, that can yeah. be a constant sort of whip on the back. Oh yeah, totally. To, that you've not done enough. Yeah. And, I think that's the torture of the artist sometimes, especially the creative, is that, you you know, once you've achieved mm. one picture or dream, then it's just like, but yeah. I still haven't done that one. You know, which one that's should it. I do next? And then as soon as you imagine it, it's, but being able to stand still and look at yourself and actually be comfortable in those shoes. Yeah, and being present, you know, in that moment as well. It's, and it does seem to be the thing, the most common thing that people are yeah, yeah, yeah. answering by this question, yeah. you know. Um, oh, I can imagine. But maybe, maybe it's a, you know, maybe it's a thing with age that, that I mean, like where we're at in our lives yeah, is yeah. that we're kind of, things are happening, but you, you or maybe it just never goes away. I mean, well, which, don't you think this is the, the difficulty sometimes when I think about this stuff, and I do think about this quite a lot is, you know, that, aspects of my character is also probably the thing that has got me to this point exactly so if you switch it off there's that danger because you kind of need that it's almost a delusion you know it's almost you know this, kind of, this drive that is so delusional that it's like i'm gonna be successful and i'm gonna you know not everybody but i has think it. it's just no you're right but i think the art of life and i might be wrong about this and this goes back to what you said about gaming and uh, watching movies. Is it's balance? It's balance. Yeah, yeah it is. It's it just is. balance. It's just you don't have to be, you don't have to be on one extreme. Mm. And, and and when you realise that that's not working for you, you don't have to jump to the other extreme, like from yeah, being yeah. agoraphobic and and putting on weight to yeah. going <laughs> being extreme fitness. Uh, fitness. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, it's there's got to be a middle ground. Yeah, and, yeah. And I, and I, I mean, what I, the only sort of value, no, not value, uh, viable path that seems to be mm. actually give some kind of um, feeling of worth or, yeah, or yeah. purpose and self-worth and 
appreciation is, is to find that middle ground between those two places and, and realise I can actually be driven yeah. and at the same time appreciate what yeah, I have. Yeah, yeah. And have a you life. Know, I don't... Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, it's... Um, I'll I, I relay this last thing because I, I know we're wrapping up, but my, one of my favourite filmmakers is Paul Thomas Anderson. And I think he's one of yeah. the best living filmmakers. I mean, really, it's a genius. The guy's a genius. What's your favourite film of his? Um, it... Probably there will be blood, right, yeah, um, yeah. but I really love Phantom Thread. Boogie Nights is incredible. Yeah. I mean, he's every film yeah, he's ever made. Is, I think is brilliant. You know, he's he's so so distinct. But he his first two films, he he I'll be really quick with this. But he said, um, you know, he was like filmmaker and a professional filmmaker. You have momentum and you don't stop. You don't stop. You're working as hard as you can. You want everybody to work as hard as you can. You know, I'm working sixteen hour days. And then he realized that he was losing friendships. He was losing track of what was really important. And he felt it was having an incredibly detrimental impact on his creative abilities too, mm. even though he was riding a wave of success. So he made the, the conscious decision that he was going to treat film as a nine to five and nobody mm. on his sets would work past five o'clock. Nobody would come in earlier than nine o'clock. And if he would just make it work with the budgets and the schedules, and that would have to be that so that he could have a life be present so that he could actually have a life and uh he's a very happy guy and he makes some very good films that people love working with him yeah and he seems to have found the solution well, so there is that element where you have to kind of remind yourself that you don't have to be scared of you know of backing away nothing's gonna the power to say no is also really valuable i think that's something that's taken me a long time to learn you know to actually to, to have the confidence to say, to say no to things no. It's, it's not it's not easy yeah i'm not very good at it still but you know learning learning all the time Thanks very much, Ian. It was great chatting to you. Oh, I've loved it, Charlie. It's great chatting to you, man. Yeah, and uh, yeah, thank you. Take care, man.